This King Jesus, well, he rules by saving people and then by governing those people. So thirdly, there must be a people. In the Old Testament, this people was Israel. But in the New Testament, this people group are the redeemed. Those that Jesus has saved. And then they become members of the church. So the church today is this people group. So where there is a king who is ruling, there must be a will that his people are following. A law that has been laid down by the king. In the Old Testament, we see that this law was the Torah or the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, we see this law is Jesus' teachings, which is laid out for us in the book of Matthew, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount. And we also have Paul's writings, which give us what's called the Christian ethics. And so lastly, this king has to have a land. He has to have a place where he rules. Otherwise, as Scott McKnight would say, he's just someone on the internet. A king needs a space to govern. And in the Old Testament, this space was Israel. But in the New Testament, we see that this space is anywhere where the redeemed are. So this morning, the redeemed have gathered in this space. And anyone is welcome to come into this space and experience the rule and reign of Christ. Another really good example of this is our homes. Our homes are a space where the redeemed dwell and people are allowed to come into that space and experience the rule and reign of Christ. So here we have our introduction into this kingdom, this upside down kind of a kingdom. And what I would like to do today is to continue that conversation with a question. So if we can establish, in fact, that there is a kingdom, well, how then does this kingdom grow? Or how does it advance? Because back in the day, when a king wanted to advance his kingdom, how would he go about it? Well, he'd probably gather his military or his army, and they would march out against a region that the king wanted to rule over, and they would come against that place with violence and with force and suppression. And often this would result in death and in slavery of the people that the king had come against. So is this how this upside-down kingdom of Jesus might grow? Through violence, domination and slavery? To help us with this question, we're going to be looking at a parable this morning, a parable that Jesus himself taught. And it can be found in the book of Matthew in chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. It is the parable of the weeds. Then Jesus taught them another parable. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But at night, 
when everyone was asleep, an enemy came and planted poisonous weeds among the wheat and ran away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. So the farmer's hired hands came to him and said, Sir, wasn't that good seed that you sowed in your field? Where did all of these weeds come from? He answered, This has to be the work of an enemy. They replied, Do you want us to go and gather up all of these weeds? No, he said. If you pull out the weeds, you might uproot the wheat at the same time. You must allow them both to grow together until the time of harvest. At that time, I'll tell my harvesters to make sure they gather the weeds first and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then they will harvest the wheat and put it into my barn. Now, Jesus himself interprets this time, this parable, not psalm, for us, and we can find that interpretation beginning in verse 36. So Jesus explains the parable. Jesus left the crowds and went inside the house where he was staying. Then his disciples approached him and asked, please explain the deeper meaning of the parable of the weeds growing in the field of wheat. He answered, The man who sowed his field with good seed represents me, the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds I sowed are the children of the kingdom realm. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest points to the end of this age and the harvesters are God's messengers. As the weeds are bundled up and thrown into the fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his messengers, and they will uproot everything out of his kingdom. All the lawless ones and everything that causes sin will be removed, and they will throw them into a fiery furnace, where they will experience great sorrow, pain and anguish. Then the godly ones will shine like the brightness of the sun in their Father's kingdom realm. If you're able to understand this, then you'd better respond. So let's unpack this a little by asking ourselves, are we actually looking at a picture of the kingdom in this parable? So firstly... Is there a king in this parable? Well, yes, there has to be. Because the interpretation tells us that the farmer in this parable is Jesus. And we know that Jesus is the king of this kingdom. So yes, there is a king in this parable. But he's not quite what I was expecting. He's a farmer. So does this farmer king have any land? And, well, yes, he does. He has a field. He has a farm. And we're told in the interpretation that this space is the world. So on this farm, is this farmer ruling? And does he have a will that someone's actually following out? 
threatened, yes. This farmer has some workers and they come to him once they realise that something's gone wrong with the crop and they want to know what the farmer wants them to do about it and then they follow that will, even though it's a bit of a strange will because usually aren't we told to weed our gardens? Well, I know I was. <laughs> so, um, so lastly, is in this parable, is there any people? Well, yeah, kind of. Because in this parable, we're told in the interpretation that the seed eventually grow into being people. And they're either children of the kingdom realm or children of the evil one. So we have to kind of conclude that we are, in fact, looking at a picture of the kingdom, but it's certainly an upside-down kind of picture. Because there's no palaces or crowns or thrones in this picture, we have straw hats, gumboots and plenty of dirt. But what better place to study growth than on a farm? because farms are all about growth. Whether it be the growth of livestock, like sheep or cattle or pigs, or crops, a farm is an environment where the success of the farm is dependent on the success of its produce. The produce holds the value of the farm. If a farm produces a good crop, good produce, well, everyone's going to want it. But if a farm produces not such a great crop, well, no one's going to want it. So let's keep digging into this parable and see what else we can find. In this parable, we have this main character, this farmer, and we know from the interpretation that this farmer is King Jesus. And we're told that he plants good seed into his field. He plants good seed. Why would he plant good seed? Well, because he wants a good crop. This farmer's motivation towards his crop is that it would be good, that it would be successful. And we see this in John 10.10. 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So the farmer's motivation towards his crop is that it would have life, that it would grow, and that it would be successful. Now, every good farmer knows that for this to take place, the farmer's got a lot of work to do. He has to make sure that he's chosen the right sort of seed to plant in the soil, he needs to make sure that that seed's going to get the right sort of sunlight. He needs to make sure he's got the right sort of fertiliser to feed that seed. And he's also got to make sure that the seed's going to get enough water for it to be successful. So firstly, 
How does this kingdom grow? It grows through care. It grows because somebody is caring for it. And who is the person that is providing that care or overseeing that care? Well, it's the farmer, King Jesus. So number two, this kingdom growth is a spirit's work. It's the spirit working within us and within us as a community that brings about this growth. So number three, this kingdom's growth is an invisible growth because it takes place within us and within us as a community until all of a sudden one day we wake up and go, oh, I think something grew. So number four, this kingdom growth takes place slowly. Growth is a very slow process. And we here at Door of Hope call that our hope pathway. And all of us will be somewhere along that pathway. Now the farmer knew that growth would take him time. And so from the very beginning, he was willing to wake it out. So this kingdom grows slowly, quietly, internally, invisibly, through the power and the work of the Spirit and the care of the farmer, King Jesus. And so enters the enemy, right on cue, just to mess everything up. Now, this enemy, we are told in the interpretation, is the devil. And he has broken into this field at night and he's planted poisonous weeds among the good seed and then he runs away. This enemy's motivation towards the farmer's crop is emphasised for us in John 10.10. 10. The thief does not come except to steal to kill and to destroy. This enemy's motivation for breaking into this field and planting his poisonous weeds is to steal, to kill and to destroy the farmer's crop. Remember the value of the farm is in the crop. To disvalue the crop is to disvalue the farm. We're now told in the interpretation of this parable that the weeds are the children of the evil one. Now, this kind of caused me an issue. It caused me an issue because our enemy, the devil, has absolutely no ability at all to create life. The only being with that kind of capability is God. And we're told in the parable that God plants, Farmer Jesus plants, good seed in his field. So how could the seed be children of the evil one? And then one afternoon, after much contemplation, I noticed something. 
Wheat has an evil twin called Darnal, or fake wheat. When Darnal and wheat grow together, you can't tell who's who. They both look exactly the same until maturity. At maturity, wheat produces big brown fruits or grains of wheat that are heavy and they force the stem to have to bow under the weight of the fruit. But Danal, at maturity, produces black grains that just happen to be really poisonous and they're really light. So Darnal, at maturity, stands tall and proud, while wheat is all bent over. Hmm. Now, what I found so very interesting about all of this is there's a gap. There's a gap between the time of planting and the time of maturity. And in this gap, both plants look exactly the same. So could the enemy have done something in disturbing the environment of this field that is having influence over the good seed during its time of growth, causing some to mature into wheat and others to mature into Danal? So I went hunting in the scriptures, and this is what I found. In Genesis 3.1, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, in this little verse, we have a garden. And in that garden, we see a good seed. We see Eve hanging out in this lovely space that God had planted her in. And into this space slithers the enemy. And what is the seed that he sows against her? His said words. The enemy sows the seeds of said words into Eve's environment. Did God really say, he said to her, causing her to think, to question, to worry and to doubt? But how does she choose to respond to these seeds of said words? In Genesis 3, verse 6, we read this. When the, enemy, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. She chooses to reach out her hand and take for herself 
what the Lord had told her not to and to define what was right for her for herself. She chose to stand tall and proud and defiant in the face of God and rebel against his rule, standing a little bit like Danal. The seed of said words had had powerful influence over this good seed, Eve. Another example we can find in the book of Job. Job was a farmer, yet another garden. And he is described as being blameless, upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He is described as being the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was a really good seed. But the enemy gains permission to sow into Job's world the seed of circumstances. Check out what the enemy does to Job's circumstances. Firstly, his oxen and donkeys are all stolen and the servants are all killed. His sheep and the shepherds are all burned up by some random fire. His camels are stolen and all of those servants are killed as well. His sons and daughters are crushed by a great wind that blows their house in. And Job himself ends up covered in these pussy sores that he has to get a bit of pottery for and scrape the pus off his body. Now, if that's not some crushing circumstances, I'm not quite sure what is. But how does Job choose to respond to the seeds of circumstances that the enemy has brought against him in his field? In Job 1, verse 20, we read this. At this time, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Two good seeds. Eve and Job, both have the enemy bring seeds of said words or circumstances into their fields that has influenced their growth gap and ultimately their maturity or their resolve. So how does this kingdom now grow under the influence of the enemy? Number five. This kingdom now grows under pressure. From the said words and the circumstances that the enemy has brought into this field, disturbing the environment and having influence over the seed. And so now, number six, this kingdom grows tired. It grows tired because of the pressure it's under. 
Weeds suck the nutrients and the water out of the soil that was intended for the plants. And that's why the Bible says things like, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Are you weary? Carrying a heavy burden? Then come to me. I will refresh your life, for I am your oasis. Simply join your life with mine. Learn my ways and you'll discover that I'm gentle, humble, easy to please. You will find refreshment and rest in me. For all that I require of you will be pleasant and easy to bear. That's why the scriptures also say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to relieve me of this, but he answered me, my grace is always more than enough for you. And my power finds its full expression through your weakness. So I will celebrate my weaknesses. For when I'm weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted. For when I feel my weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I am made yet stronger. For my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. And so lastly, how does this kingdom grow? It grows messy. Growth is messy. And one minute I might look and behave like wheat, and the next I probably look and behave a little bit like Dunhull. As I wrestle with the said words and the circumstances that are putting pressure on me, and don't we see this wrestling so clearly in the book of the Psalms? People wrestling with the said words and the circumstances that they find themselves in. But it's not so much the growth process that matters quite as much as maturity. In the end, how will you be found? As wheat? Or as Danal. So how does this upside-down kingdom grow? It grows through care. It grows because somebody is looking after it. Secondly, this kingdom's growth is a spirit's work. Thirdly, this kingdom growth is invisible. Four. This kingdom's growth takes place slowly. Five, this kingdom grows under pressure. Six, this kingdom grows tired. And seven, this kingdom grows 
messy. So in the midst of all of this pressure, tiredness and mess, can we be certain at all that the kingdom will prevail and that its value will be kept intact? Well, to help us answer that question, we have two very sweet little parables that are actually found in between the parable of the weeds and its interpretation. In verse 31 of Matthew 13, we read this, the parable of the tiny mustard seed. Then Jesus taught them another parable. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to the tiny mustard seed that a man takes and plants in his field. Although the smallest of all the seeds, it eventually grows into the greatest of garden plants, becoming a tree for birds to come and build their nests in its branches. We also have the parable of the yeast, beginning in verse 33 of Matthew 13. Then he taught them another parable. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to yeast that a woman takes and blends into three measures of flour and then waits until all the dough rises. Both of these sweet little parables say the same thing. A small thing over time can, through the power of the Spirit, become great things and exceed everyone's expectation. You see, a mustard seed is about one to two millimetres in size. And it usually grows to be a bush that's about a metre and a half. That's not really big enough for birds to come and build nests in a metre and a half. But apparently, if it has an exceptional growth season, it can make four metres. It can exceed all of its expectation. Now, yeast is a microscopic organism that this woman takes and places into three measures of flour. Now, the Passion Translation tells me that that's about 22 kilos of flour, which apparently is enough flour to feed 300 people. A tiny microscopic organism like yeast can penetrate over time that much flour and feed 300 people. So remember, it is the farmer that is caring for this field. And when he cares for something in Matthew 16, 18, we read, I will build my church, Christ said. And all the powers of hell will not be able to conquer it. The kingdom is growing and it is in very safe hands. Amen. Amen.